Oh, great God, help us. Help us to remember the love of our Redeemer. That nothing can separate us from your love that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that for those who have not believed on Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would know that there is hope in a Redeemer who would purchase them and whose blood has covered sins for those who would have faith in Him. Father, I pray You would have Your Spirit to guide my words this morning, that Your Spirit would move, that people would hear, and hearts would be changed for Your glory and for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. Um, Something that I was, I don't know, I guess struck by or reminded of this week was the reality of hell. Um, We certainly preach about whatever comes up in the scriptures, and we've talked about this before, but I guess I, I just really want to remind us all of the reality of hell. For those who don't know and aren't known by Christ, by God through Christ, that is your destiny. And there are cults that have doctrine that dismisses hell in their false religion. There there are those that would believe in what's called annihilationism, that when a believer dies, they go to be in heaven, and when an unbeliever dies, they simply cease to exist. Um, You know, most annihilationists would say there's a time you're going to spend in hell paying for your sins, but then eventually you will cease to exist. So there is no eternality to death. Well, that's a lie. That doctrine would make us no different than animals in that we don't have a soul that will never die. All of us, made in the image of God, have souls that will never die. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal, ionias, without end, never to cease, everlasting. For these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same eternality. Some to punishment and some to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. In flaming fire, inflicting... This is the return of Jesus when He comes back to judge the living and the dead. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those that do not know God and those that do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal, Ionias, destruction. The external ills and struggles away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So for those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Do not obey the, the salvation. Do not obey the call to repentance and faith. Those will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and all of his goodness. Mark 9, 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A forever fire that is not quenched where the worm does not die, does not cease to exist. This eternal fire, we see it in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever, Ais, into, unto, through, towards, and ever, Ion. So the smoke of their torment goes onto or into or unto Ion, forever, without end, perpetual. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I want you to listen to Revelation 20.10 and how hell is described. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Now when you think about that picture, the lake of fire. You ever had this sensation of being underwater and not being able to get your breath and feel like you might be drowning? How frightening that is? I don't know if you've experienced that, but when you're, when you're underwater and you, 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 you can't get your breath, it's a very frightening feeling. So it's a lake. It's a lake. The, 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 the hell is a lake of fire. You're drowning in eternal fire. <laughs> Ever burned your hand on a stove or in a hot pan? You ever actually grabbed the handle of a hot pan and burned your hand and how bad that hurts and for two weeks you might have pain? Make no mistake, in hell or in heaven, we will have physical bodies. They won't be the bodies we have now. We have resurrected bodies that will live forever. And forever, those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't know God will burn in the lake of fire. You will drown in fire. Make no mistake, what I'm telling you is true. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think you might have weeping and gnashing of teeth if you're drowning in fire? I can't even get the word picture good enough in my mind to tell it to you. Just think about a lake of fire. Think about the last time you saw a big bonfire. Just flaming and hot and you can't really... You're tossed in there to burn forever and never perish. That is the torment for all eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end. And that is real. I am a po I'm as positive of that, that there is a hell and there is a heaven, as I am that I'm standing here before you today. I'm more positive of that. This is true. This is horrifying. Do 
Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. Because if you don't know him, and if you don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is your destiny. All human beings have souls that will never die. All mankind will spend eternity in one of two places. Either in glory, where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. In perfect peace with the God of the universe. Worshiping Him. Or eternity spent in a lake of fire. Eternal punishment and torment. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We'll be in verses 7 through 11 today. Last week we began looking at this, this Sabbath day meal that Jesus was having at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. These Pharisees that we looked and saw, the Pharisees that hated Jesus because he was debunking their religion. He was calling them to repentance. They thought they could be right through their religion and through their genealogy. They, these Pharisees, they, they, wanted him, they wanted him dead. They... This Pharisee, this ruler of the Pharisees, invited him to his house and invited him to his house on a Sabbath day and, um, to trap him. Remember, there was a man with dropsy that was there that he healed. 14.1, on one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. It's interesting. We're going to look at something this week. But they were watching him carefully because they were setting a trap for him. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Remember dropsy, that was, that was endema. That was, that was like a, a failure of the liver, or the kidneys, or the heart. They had, he had fluid on his body. He was drowning in his own fluid. That's what he had. He had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Remember, the law, the actual law that the scribes and Pharisees would have known well, the Old Testament, there was no, there was no prohibition to healing on the Sabbath. Now, in their own man-made laws they had in their own sabbat but they had nothing they could come so so they couldn't come back at him with an argument from the scriptures so they remained silent then he took him and healed him and sent him away he healed this man with dropsy he healed this man that was drowning in his own fluids and he and he sent him away you don't need to be amongst these pharisees and these scribes they they don't have you here because they they care about you remember they don't care at all about you and he, he proves it after he goes he he, he convicts these these Pharisees, or he condemns them. He took him and healed him. He said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen to a well on Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? He tells them, you, you hypocrites. Which of you, if you had a son who fell into a well and was drowning like this man is drowning, would not quickly pull him out on the Sabbath? Or an ox, because it's worth money to you, wouldn't pull him out quickly? You don't care at all about this man, this image bearer of God, this this." 
fellow Jew. You don't care all about him. You care more. You care about your son and your ox, but you care more about your own self-righteous rules and laws than you do about this man. And they could not reply to these things. They had nothing to say. They were exposed. Remember the setting. We'll get to that a little bit more, but he's at this Pharisee's house having a meal, and this is the first thing that happens. Okay, please stand, and we will read today's passage. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 7. We're going to see the shame of self-exaltation versus the reward of humility. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Maybe seated. Jesus gives this parable to these hypocrites to show them the shame of self-exaltation and the reward of humility. I'm so, I was so... I, you're probably getting tired of hearing it, but it's just true. I'm so edified and encouraged as I prepare to preach this sermon this week. I'm so thankful for, for how God is having this passage to impact me in ways that never has impacted me before. I, I, I beg you to listen well. Everyone in here today, listen, listen well. There are implications for all of us in here. There are implications from this passage for those who have believed on Christ and those who have yet to confess Christ. So you've got Jesus being invited to this ruler of the Pharisees' house for a Sabbath day meal. It would have, again, we talked about this last week, it would have been a big, it would have been a big meal all prepared the day before because the law did say you couldn't cook on the Sabbath. So this certainly would have been prepared the day before and kept through whatever ways for that day. It would have been a big meal. And uh, how, how they would sit at a, at, a, at a gathering like this, it would be a, it would be a U-shaped um, setting. And you'd have floor-level couches or, or cushions. And at the, the head of the U, the U-shape, Sitting in the middle of the head of the you would be the host. And then, and then to his, his left would be the most distinguished guest. And to his right would be the second most distinguished guest. And then there would be couches or cushions that would go down the sides of the U-shape. And they would be arranged the same way. Most important to least important as it went along. So most important here, second most important, third most important, and then fourth, fifth, all the way down based on the level of importance. And they'd all be reclined at table. They would be laying on these couches or these cushions, and they would be eating, and that would be, that would be the setup. So this, this ruler of the Pharisees would be in position one, and then whoever his most distinguished guest would be there, next most distinguished guest, and then on down the line. And whoever was all the way at the end was the least 
distinguished or honorable. In the closer you were here, the more noticed you were, the more honored you were. In our, in our culture, in Western culture, we kind of have an overarching, what, a overarching uh, value of, of innocence and guilt. Like you're either guilty or innocence of thing. Well, in, the, in this culture, in, in most other cultures, but certainly in, in Jesus' time, in that Israeli culture, uh, the, 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 the gauge points would be honor and shame. Once those innocent guilt, it was honor and shame. You're either shamed or you're honored. And that was kind of how they measured, measured uh, people. So they're seating in this arrangement. Jesus, we'll see, had watched them come in and go to their seats. So now, the now is, right immediately after he had healed this man with dropsy, and their mouths had been shut, they had nothing to say in response to what he had done and how he had described why he did it. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. We notice how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So Jesus, Jesus notices their self-exaltation because they chose their seats. Um, I guess we'll get to it a little bit, but like if we go to a wedding or a, or a, I don't know, a corporate gathering or a big meal, oftentimes there's place, well, go to the Tyler Bogomis house, there's, there's little placemats that say, here's who sits there. Okay, so uh, you go to a wedding. I went to the wedding. We're at table number four or table number 11, and that's where you go sit. Well, here they didn't do anything like that. They just came and grabbed seats. And they came and grabbed seats based on how honored they thought they were. So Jesus had watched this happen. And this is a sidebar from the main point of the the passage, I would say, but I think it's something you can, just to be a reminder. Remember, they were watching him earlier. Just know that Jesus was watching them. Just know that God sees all. His, his perception is all-inclusive. Okay, he perceives everything. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce, pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He, he sees everything. Not just your actions, but he sees your heart. He sees my heart. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God sees all. And Jesus saw how he noticed how they chose the places of honor. He watched them. He watched how they, their self-exaltation to, to how they were going to choose their seats. Their desire to gain honor by where they sat. He saw that. So then he tells them a parable to expose them. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. Now remember, this is a parable. This is that Jesus told a parable. That's uh, to, to make a point, he tells this parable, and he's telling them this parable to expose their, their self-exaltation, their love of having the honor given to them by where they sat. These, these scribes and these Pharisees, they were, they were constantly doing things to receive attention. 
as to be seen valuable and honorable. Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. This is a way of life. These Pharisees and scribes who had been at that meal that day on the Sabbath that Jesus was at, they, the way of life was to draw attention to themselves with how they dressed, how they fasted, how they prayed. It, it, it reminds me so much of Kenya, I can hardly stand it. One of my biggest heart's burdens. This is not true of Trinity Baptist, Marungi, or, or the, that small bit of people who are Reformed Baptist or biblical but but you go someplace every every church is going to have special seats that are set aside for special people and they i think about the bishop of of bible fellowship anytime you would walk into a place he would get the seat of honor and he would go right to it and no one would dare sit in that place This, this, I remember, I mean, it was lunchtime and, and we would eat and the first plate would be brought to, everybody else would go get food, would be brought to this special man. And after the meal, we would all go back for class and we you know, were at church if there was a meal at church and, and he would get a pot of tea placed by him, no one else would. And believe me, I can see it. They take, they, they, they take great pride in being honored in this way. Being, having the best seat in the synagogue and the place of honor at feast and the greeting in the marketplace. Don't call them pastor. You make sure you call them bishop. Because that's the title that they deserve. It's a little bit of the green room mentality we have at big conferences in America, isn't it? Special food, all the way down to M&M's being the right color, I'm sure. I mean, really, it's something to consider. Not, not, like, not like we consider, but I'm saying for the, for the men who are that, may God be kind that they not want that and consider it some kind of a badge to be honored in that way. I always wondered why the speakers at the conference didn't sit in the conference like the rest of us. I still wonder that. It's interesting, though. I don't know this wasn't even on. But G3, you know who came and listened to almost every message? David Miller and Paul Washer. Whether they were speaking or not. They really didn't place themselves in another place. Okay, so, so, Jesus is going to tell them a parable. And the parable he's going to tell, because he had noticed how they chose the places of honor, the seats of honor, the seats closest to the head man, the closest seats. Here's the parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest places. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
This is, this is a parable that exposes that the way these men live, this self-exalting way they live is, is going to backfire. He, he uses his example of a, of a wedding feast. Now, that at a wedding feast, so it's a parable talking about a wedding feast, which I think, interestingly, what's he teach on when he goes around? The kingdom of heaven. What are we going to have in the kingdom of heaven? A wedding feast with Christ and his bride. So he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Entimas, held in honor, prized, valued, precious. Do not sit in a place that is theirs for to be held in honor or to be seen as more valuable. Don't do that. Don't sit there. They would be thinking, what? Why not? I am the bishop. That is my seat. Of course I'm going to go to those seats. Why wouldn't I? Honor and shame. Well, I'm not going to be shamed. I'm going to live with honor. And honor is getting close to the head man. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor. Why? Lest then you will be, uh, then, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited in by him. Because if you rush to a seat of honor and somebody more important comes in after you that the guest thinks is more honorable and more valuable, more important, somebody might show up. Like this is a real example. I've watched this happen in Kenya where, where a lowly pastor, a, a deacon of a local church sat in one of the chairs not knowing the bishop was coming and when the bishop came, they came over and they made him move. Get out of that chair. That's not your chair. And when this this more important guest comes, you grab that seat of honor. When the more important guest comes, he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Aksune, shame, disgrace. You will be really embarrassed. If you are told to move out of the place, you know, you ever been to a, a sporting event where you buy tickets in the cheap seats because there's a couple good seats down here and you go and take them and then they come and you're looking around, you're scared because if they find out you don't have those tickets and they actually come down and say move and you're kind of embarrassed. You know, there's 20,000 people in the game, they really don't know. But you have a situation like this, you come and you take one of the best seats and then somebody more important comes in, you're going to be ashamed when you're told to get up. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be disgraced. They would have certainly understood this. He's telling them, don't grab the best seat because if somebody more important comes in and you have to get moved, you're going to be embarrassed. So don't do it. Now the opposite. Verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. Eskatas, least importance, lowest in status, lowest of rank, grade, or worth. This would have been very foreign to them to think about coming in and sitting all the way down at the end where the nobody sat, in the nosebleed section, in the Bob Euchre seats. All the way down there. That's where you should go sit. The place where the nobodies live. 
sit. The place with nobody was ranked. That's where you should sit. They would be thinking, are you crazy? Like, admit shame? Run to shame? No, I'm going to run to honor. These seats. Not going to run to shame. We need honor. We seek self-exaltation. His audience in that day would have been thinking. We seek the best. We love the best seats in the house. We love the best seats in the synagogue. We love being greeted in the marketplace. He tells them why. When you're invited, go sit in the lowest place so when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored. Doxa. A good opinion concerning one resulting in praise, honor, and glory. Can you imagine? Think about this. If you sit down there and then the big toe says, hey, hey, come on, you're more important than that. You come up. The whole crowd sees it. Wow, that's really somebody. There'd be honor. Now, was Jesus giving him this parable as a manipulative way to actually end up in the good seats? So, so actually, actually, if you're one who hears something like that, if you're sitting in there and you're one of those scribes and Pharisees, you think, okay, well, I want to end up up there, so I'll go ahead and start down there because I really want to end up up here anyway. It's not what he's giving them. He's giving them a parable to, to show to show the, the self-exaltation that they so much crave. That they want to be seen by men as honored. And if they go grab these seats, then men will see them as honorable and valuable. And if they have those seats, men will see them as shameful and disgraceful. This was not a ploy to, to feign humility to get self-exaltation in the end. This is a parable to make a point like all parables. It's not to be used as a prescriptive, but rather it's a, a parable that makes a point. Jesus now tells them the spiritual axiom in this parable. An axiom is an established rule or principle. It's a, it's a self-evident truth. It's, it's metaphysics in God's kingdom. Here's the spiritual axiom that Jesus says. This is the point of the parable. For everyone who exalts, kubsao, to cause something to come high, to raise up, to lift up. For everyone who lifts themselves up by trying to look good before men, anyone who does that will be humbled. Whoever raises themselves up, whoever wants to make themselves look important, whoever wants to make themselves look honorable, whoever wants to make themselves look good enough, they will be humbled. Tapanao, to cause someone to become disgraced and humiliated with the implication of embarrassment and shame, to humiliate or to put to shame. Anyone who tries to exalt themselves will be put to shame. This is the axiom. This is what Jesus said. The, the point of the parable is, you want to try to lift yourself up, make yourself look good, you will be put to shame. You want to trust in 
what men think of you. You want to trust in how people honor you. You're going to be put to shame. You're going to be humbled. This word, tapanao, is used in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> how does one make themselves great in the kingdom of heaven? How do I get to these seats? <clears throat> and calling him to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, tapanao, like this child is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. A very low view of oneself. As unimportant as a child. Children know they're not important. Think about it. Well, that's not even true sometimes in this culture. But if you had a seating arrangement where the, the most important people went to the front, our kids would not be so bold as to run to the front. At least some. So greatness in God's kingdom, even entering into God's kingdom. And by the way, real quick, if you're one of those kids who would make sure everybody else gets to go there, because you're doing that because by doing that you show what a good kid you are and how right with God you are, and that's the reason you're doing it, useless. But greatness in God's kingdom is, is for those who humble themselves who see themselves as unimportant, as disgraceful, as shameful. They understand their lowliness. Again, it wasn't 21st century North America. Children in this culture didn't have a lot of respect or rights. or They were thought of as children and they had their place. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, in, in Mary's Magnificent, what does she say about the Messiah? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down, brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. This is what God will do. This is what the Messiah will do. He will exalt the humble and bring down the proud and mighty. This, this, this principle about people who exalt themselves, who are proud. We see Proverbs 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Listen, some of you in here today need to hear me. You need to understand something. You are arrogant in heart in that you think you're better than the next guy or gal. You actually think that because you're more accomplished than the next person, you get these seats. You get these rewards. You're actually arrogant in heart. You don't understand your disgracefulness and your shamefulness. And you're an abomination to the Lord. And Christian, when we want to run to these seats, we're an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, <laughs> that's not me. I know I'm pretty cool, but I'm pretty humble about it. 
proud people, self-exalting people, won't be exalted. They will be shamed and they will be disgraced. Humble people, those who understand their shame and their, their disgrace, understand, I, I'm lucky to be in the room. I'm happy to be at the end. I'm lucky to be in the room. Now let me run up and show how honorable I am. That's who will be exalted. Not something you manufacture in your heart, something that, that God manufactures in your heart, but that you can see, even in this morning as I'm talking to you, you can see, you know what? I really don't think I'm all that shameful or disgraceful. I really think I'm kind of okay. I'm doing a lot of cool things. Not as bad as the next guy. My parents don't know anything. They, don't know. they, don't know. they think I'm bad, but I'm really good. They're the problem. Look at the awards on my shelf. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This has application for believers as well. This has application for us. Proverbs 25, 6. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence. Sounds almost like this parable, doesn't it? Or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Don't rush up there to tell somebody how good you are. And show them all your great accomplishments. Proverbs 27.2 Let another praise you. And not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. Clear application for us brothers and sisters. Don't tell everyone how great you are. And don't humble brag it either. Rid yourself of that by the grace of God. Rid yourself of that. That you actually think, you actually think in your heart of hearts, you actually are better than somebody else. Because of your, the way you live your life, or the things you can do, or the talents you have. Rid yourself of that. Can't wait to tell somebody what you did that was so good. But you do it in a humble brag sort of way. Oh, you should have seen what God had me do. I already saw it. Let them praise you. We ought not think highly of ourselves. We ought not rush to think we, hey, look, I might not be right. I might be this guy or probably this guy, but if not this guy, I'm at least this guy. Certainly not that guy down there or that gal down there. We're to be humble like our King Jesus. Let's look at some examples of those who exalted themselves in Scripture and how they were humbled by God. And then some people who humbled themselves and how they were exalted by God. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians, Chaldean Empire. He was a king for 43 years in the 6th century, the very end of the 7th century and the 6th century. He had a great kingdom. Daniel 4, 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? Look, I'm up here, I'm looking at, look, is this not great Babylon? Which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Exalting himself, yes? Look at this great kingdom I've built. I've done it by my power. Exalting himself. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O, oh, be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules of the kingdom of, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." Oh, how great I am. Look at all my accomplishments. Surely God is, recognizes my greatness, and you all better recognize my greatness. Did he get humbled? Lived like an animal. Ate grass. He exalted himself greatly, and he was humbled. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was humbled. And then look at this, Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. No longer is he saying, look at my kingdom. It's your kingdom. Your dominion forever, he says. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So he begins, he's exalting himself. He is humiliated by God. He comes to a place of humility, seeing that God is God and he's not. And he begins to praise him. At that time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Listen to the testimony of a man who was pretty proud and was humbled. God will humble you. You exalt yourself and he will Humble you, Job, after God put him in his place and, and let him have it, <laughs> humiliated him for, for, for questioning God in his ways. He was, he was verbally humiliated and disgraced by God for a couple of chapters at the end of the book of Job. And then he responded this way, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He humbled himself. He saw himself for who he was and God for who he was. And he repented. He, he humbled himself. He repented in dust and ashes. He made himself to be nothing. And then what did God do? Restored all of his, all that he lost, all of his fortune times two. He exalted him. And if you're thinking, 
Okay. I want to have a lot of stuff. Okay, God, I'm a worm. Now give me everything. You're just exalting yourself even more, and he is going to crush you. He is going to crush you. Look at what Isaiah did when he saw God, Jesus, for who he is. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is witnessing all of this. He's seeing Christ on his throne with the robe of his filling the temple. He's seeing the worship of the, of the angelic hosts. Smoke is filling the temple. And what does he do? And I said, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, oh, I see God for who he is. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of, people of unclean lips. And God is holy, holy, holy. He was ashamed. He was humbled before God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having, a hand, his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. He humbled himself. God atoned for his sin. And then he exalted Isaiah to do what? Next verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then, then I said, Here I am. Send me. And then God used Isaiah to be one of his great prophets. He humbled him. And he exalted him. And know this. This passage says who's going to do the humbling and who's going to do the exalting. God is going to do the humbling, and God is do, going to do the exalting. But do not think you'll get to stand before God and blame Him for not doing His work for those who have not yet believed on Him. What about Pharaoh? Exodus 9 never would humble himself, would he? Lots of chances. Lots of chances Pharaoh had to humble himself, and he would not humble himself. He kept God's people and would not let them go, and he let them go, and he went and tried to chase them down. Exodus 9, for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, to show you my power, so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You are exalting yourself, Pharaoh. And what happened to Pharaoh? He was destroyed. He and all his army in the sea that had them to drown. And now he's drowning in a lake of fire. Or will be. He was destroyed by God. Utterly destroyed. Given opportunity after opportunity, he would not humble himself. Some of you in here need to hear my mouth. You're given opportunity after opportunity and you continue to not humble yourself. You continue to think somehow 
that you're good enough. That you've accomplished enough. I'll clean myself up, God, and then I'll come to you. (laughs) You can't. You can't clean yourself up and come to God. You come to God because you know you're dirty. You're a man or a woman of unclean lips or a boy or a girl of unclean lips. You're a sinner. And there's nothing you can do but humble yourself. See your wretchedness. See your disgracefulness. See your shame. Gideon, great humility, didn't he? He said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? God tells Gideon, you're going to save Israel from the Midianites. This 135,000 strong army, you're going to save him. Now, you got 32,000. Oh, by the way, we're going to take it all the way down to 300 eventually. But what does Gideon say when he comes? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm nothing. Nothing. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Lots of humility. And what does God end up doing? Exalting him to a man who leads an army of 300 to defeat an army of 135,000. Oh yeah, good job. You, you called the right guy, Gideon says. I'm the guy, God. I got this. No, I, I don't have this. My tribe's the least and I'm the least in my tribe. What are you coming after me for? I'm going to sit down there. I'm just lucky to be in the room. Book of Esther for another self-exalting proud man, Haman. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman was like second in charge. Haman was the man. Haman says, you better, you better genuflect when you see me. And Mordecai didn't. And he was mad. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends with his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them. Here's what, what did Haman recount to them? The splendor of his riches. The number of his sons. And all the promotions with which the king had honored him. Haman goes through this list of all the cool stuff he is and did. And how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. I'm in this seat. And everybody better, better, better recognize that. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let, not one but me, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she spread. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. <laughs> I am all that and a cup of tea, and that man, that Jew, is going to start to recognize that. Self-exaltation. Don't you know what seat I sit in? Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. She joined right in with the puffing up Haman and how great he was, and added to his self-exaltation and his friends. 
Then joy, go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he made the gall- had the gallows made. So Haman builds gallows to hang Mordecai on. He exalts himself and how great he is. He's puffed up by his wife and his friends. He builds a gallow and, and he, he gallow, and he plans to have Mordecai hanged on it. What ended up happening to Haman? Esther 7.10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. He was brought low. He was humbled to death. Exalted himself, brought low. David responding to Saul when Saul says, Marry my daughter. David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives? My father clan in Israel. I should, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? David says, I'm nothing. What do you mean? Marry your daughter, king. He had great humility about himself until he didn't. How about when, when he exalted himself by saying, I'm not going to go to war like I'm supposed to. I'm going to stay back. He exalted himself by saying, I'm a king. Bring me that good-looking woman. He exalted himself when he, when he slept with her and pregnated her. He exalted himself in the power of king to have, have Uriah killed in battle. Until Nathan came and he was brought low. And he humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes, in prayer and fasting. He was a man after God's own heart. New Testament example of self-exaltation. On on a day, Acts 12, on an appointed day, Herod Agrippa put on his royal robes, (laughs) put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. He gave a speech. It was butter. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. King sitting there in all his pomp and circumstance, he gives this oration and the people say, that is the voice of a God, not a mere man. And Agrippa says, no, 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 no. No, he doesn't. He takes it all in. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He was humbled. He was brought low. He was embarrassed. He was immediately put to death for his pride and his self-exaltation. You cannot come to God with your self-exaltation. With your good works. Oh, look at what a good kid that is. Man, what a nice young man or woman or boy or girl. Boy, they're so nice. They're so sweet. Look at all they accomplished. Look how, look how they're so behaved. Yeah, look at me. But you don't know, I, I got to do a little better. I'll do a little better. No, you're not all of that. You might be relatively moral. You might be relatively obedient. You might, you might, because of God's grace in your life, understand how you interact with your parents and your family. But that's a bunch of garbage when you bring it to God. You don't get to sit in these seats. And if you do, you're going to be taken down there. Blessed, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Remember Patokos, the beggar, who couldn't even look up? They would beg with their hand out, crouch down in a corner because they were too embarrassed to even look up. They were so ashamed. That's who's blessed. 
That's who's sitting at the far end. That's who God will exalt. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That mourn over their sinfulness. Not glory in their accomplishments. Mourn over their sinfulness. Oh, I'm not a sinner. Well, uh, you know what? Everybody's a sinner. No, you're a sinner. Stop hiding behind the truth you know that everyone is a sinner and recognize you are a sinner. You are a sinner. You have nothing to bring before God, and if you're going to self-exalt yourself and think you can, and you don't see your disgrace and your shame... then you will be humbled. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that have a meekness toward God, that are, that are relying on God. Who's going to inherit the kingdom of heaven? The humble person. Who's going to be shamed? The proud person. The, pers- the person who is relying on themselves to gain access to the kingdom of God is going to be shut out. Some of you, here, some of you in here have not yet seen yourselves as shameful and disgraceful. You are. You keep trying to clean yourselves up and then you'll come to God. You can't. Stop trying to make yourself better. Stop trying to be honored and noticed by people with your pious life. See yourself for who you are, a sinner. Stop relying on being better than the girls and boys around you. Men and women around you. James 4. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Recognize you are a sinner. Cleanse your hands. Well, okay, I'll wash it really hard. I'll quit sinning. You can't. The blood. You need the blood. See yourself as Isaiah saw himself. As Job saw himself. As Paul saw himself as the worst of all sinners. Because that's who you are. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. (laughs) 
Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone be more distinguished than you be invited. Then lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he, will, he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin in shame to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a promise. That's just the way it is. That's metaphysics. That's an axiom. It's a truism. Do you enjoy being the center of attention? You think you deserve the best? This is for everyone. A lot of your conversations are filled with I. Have a hard time admitting you're wrong. Rarely go past a mirror without looking at yourself. Stubborn. Don't like to be corrected or challenged. Your, heat, your feelings are easily hurt. You're impatient with other people's mistakes. You don't get enough appreciation for all that you do. You're offended if you render service and you don't receive a thank you. You seldom ask for help because you can do it better yourself. That's all pride. This goes for believers and unbelievers in this room. That's pride. And God will bring shame upon you and me. And we'll exalt the humble. If you say, if you don't answer yesterday to those, you're just lying to yourself and you have even more pride than the next guy. Closing thought. The reward of true humility before the thrice holy God is the way to exaltation in glory. The way, the reward of true humility is salvation. The shame of self-exaltation, the natural propensity of man, the shame of what you naturally want to do and I naturally want to do is being brought low by God to an eternity in hell. The hell we talked about in the pre-sermon. Every human being must humble themselves before God and He will exalt them. Have you? Will you? Will you continue to self-exalt and bring the shame upon you? Or will you humble yourself and see yourself for who you really are before a holy God? And look to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Father, thank you again for your word. Father, it is, it is difficult. It is difficult to see the, the humility that your people will have. Father, even for those who you've humbled, and we will be exalted in glory even now, Father, that we, we rush to be noticed. We think we deserve those seats closer. Or we, or we falsely act as if we don't. But we, we want to be thanked. We want to be recognized. We want to be rewarded. 
And Father, there are those in this room today who are relatively good people because they're better than most. And that's what they think, and they think they just have to keep being better. Father, break them, humble them, show them their shame and their disgrace, show them their sinfulness, show them they are people of unclean lips, that they cannot stand before you, no matter how good they are, no matter how many awards they get, no matter how much money they make, no matter how much they achieve on this life, they cannot be in your presence. Minus Christ. Amen. You'll stand and sing hymn 208, My Ransom. 208.